Thank you, guys. For those of you that are here this morning live and for those watching live stream on YouTube and Facebook, before we start the sermon today, I just want to tell you how much uh, I love this church and the people in it. Um, you guys mean a lot to me. I love seeing your faces on Sunday morning. I also love getting the emails and the texts during the week. Well, the ones that say I did a good job, but those are the ones that I like primarily. <clears throat> but I really do love this church. Uh, it's been a, a long process with COVID and everything and the, the seven or eight months where we were kind of doing worship in two separate locations live at the same time with worship and preaching at the Nightlife Center in here. But as, as the vaccine continues to roll out, we're going to continue to be cautious as, and be responsible, but I look forward to more people being able to come back uh, to worship when you feel safe. Uh, for the, but for now, if you're watching live, I love you guys and miss you. Can't wait to see more of you uh, in real time, as they say. We're going to continue. By the way, my voice is a little hoarse this morning. Just um, forgive me for that. We're continuing with our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is week number 65. I've entitled it Hating Jesus. So... <clears throat> Normally, what I do in an in, in a introduction is I start off by asking you a question. That's supposed to be a really good thing to do to get people engaged. And I'm not going to ask a question. I'm just going to tell you stuff, okay? We've learned very much of the story of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 through 13 is verifiable. With the exception of a few miracles, the overall message is very hard to reject <clears throat> in fact and in content. And then you go to the teachings of Jesus about the poor, loving your neighbor, criticizing fake religion, caring for widows. Who could argue with that stuff, right? That's like fashionable social justice, Jesus. Everybody loves that. Even atheists love that. Who could criticize that? It's the part of the story about Jesus that is acceptable and palatable, even fashionable. It's the what would Jesus do type of thing, right? But the next three chapters, and today is sort of an introduction into the final crescendo of the Gospel of Mark, and it will be, listen to me, intense. These are the most critical part of the story of Jesus, the details of his crucifixion and his glorious resurrection. And these next three chapters of Mark demand one of two responses from every human being that has ever been alive. Either you have to reject chapter 14 through 16 as a fraud, or you believe that Jesus is resurrected and it is your source of hope and joy. Because let me tell you, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. And this the next three chapters become the most problematic part of Jesus for an unbelieving world. They have no problem with social justice, Jesus. This, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus, that one they've got a problem with. And so an unbelieving world, frankly, hopes, and this is ironic because they're living in hope just like we are, but their hope is these last three chapters can be dismissed as a fairy tale. That Jesus was just a really good first century social justice warrior who, like everyone else, died. Embracing just his social justice message is easy. But Jesus didn't leave that as an option to be a follower of him. And in many ways, the world resents that. So let's look at the passage today. It's actually quite short. <clears throat> 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Historically speaking, let's look at, uh, it's not going forward. Can you just advance it for me? There we go. Historically speaking, I want to look at some important details. This is Passover week. I've told you that before, but I'm going to remind you. There are no throwaway lines in Scripture, especially in the Gospels. And many will just read these first two verses of chapter 14 and lump them in with the next six or seven. Just kind of skim over them. We cannot. They set the scene as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is the week-long celebration afterwards of Israel's liberation from Egyptian slavery in Exodus chapter 12. For those of you who don't know, the first Passover, enslaved Jews were instructed to sacrifice a lamb, paint the blood symbolically over their doors, and God would pass over the houses with blood painted on the door threshold. Every house with blood over the door, sparing the firstborn male in those families. As an aside, by the way, I did some research. Do you know there is significant archaeological evidence for what happened next? Which is that there was a slaughter. Every firstborn male of every Egyptian house was killed that didn't have the blood over the door. Now, God didn't need to see the blood to know which houses to pass over. And archaeological evidence that we have uncovered in the past 30 to 40 years say that there was definitely something that happened along those lines in ancient Egyptian history, which is just fascinating, isn't it? The blood of the lamb, though, covering sin, providing the Jews an escape from judgment, is a symbol of the future lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So I'm not going to go into all the details. We're going to study more about this later as we get to this part of the story in in Mark. But if you want to get more details about the Passover, read Exodus 12 this week to get a full understanding of the emotion and the drama about what Passover was and why the Jews celebrated it faithfully every year. Now I want to look at, historically speaking, I want to look at hate and fear. See, we already know the religious elites were driven by two things, hate for Jesus and fear of his following. Now, they couldn't refute all these incredible truths that Jesus had taught in the temple on Tuesday and Wednesday. If they cared about truth at all, they would realize, wow, Jesus, you're right. We're wrong. We'd love to know more. But that would be a rational response. But their response is not rational. They weren't interested in truth, even though Jesus presented it flawlessly. As a matter of fact, they hated that he presented it at all. Why? Because it demanded they change. It is an irrational response. What Jesus said in the temple on Tuesday and Wednesday was an irrefutable, harsh indictment of their depravity and their abuse of people. They feared losing control of the temple system, their massive cash cow, and their tool for power and manipulation. You see, it's hate and fear. This hate and fear inspired them to meet together and plot to arrest Jesus and to kill him. In other words, murder him. That's the hate, right? Leading to murder. But they wanted their plan to be a secret 
so they could avoid possible outrage from the people. Arresting and killing Jesus just a couple of days before Passover and before the week-long feast, that draws too much attention. It's too risky. It's too political risky, politically risky. In addition, all that unrest would certainly draw attention from Rome, and we don't want them coming in here to restore order by force. That's fear, all those things. You see, hate and fear. So they come up with a conclusion. Let's just wait. They knew they couldn't do this for everyone to see. Kill the most beloved rabbi in Jerusalem on Passover. They knew it had to be done in secret, but that's impossible with over a million people in Jerusalem for that week. Too many people watching. Too much political risk. It's the absolute worst time to kill Jesus is on Passover. Wait till the feast is over. The massive holiday crowd will be gone. Jerusalem back to regular business. It's much easier to keep secret. Look at the spiritual component of this passage. I want to talk about this being his life to give. See, Jesus is in charge even of how he's going to die, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus gave his life. They didn't take it. See, God's plan is different. Jesus on multiple occasions has forecast his death, right? We know that. But he forecasted in details I think some of you may not recognize. He forecast the day, the location, and the hour. The exact date of his crucifixion was to be, get this, the absolute worst time the elites wanted. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, in 30 AD, on Passover. That's pretty exact. And guess what? That's the last thing they wanted. But that's when it happened. This is more evidence, by the way, that rejecting Jesus is highly irrational. I broke down in week 51 of this series. That sermon was called Hosanna for now. Exactly how Daniel also laid out the stunning specifics of 3 p.m. on the 14th day of Nisan in 30 A.D. that Jesus was to be crucified, not after, on the very day they would not want it to happen. The very day they would want to avoid, he would be slain, his blood shed for our sins. You'll be hearing more stunning details about the cross in a few weeks and why the scripture itself says people watching were shocked. But he is, in fact, the Passover lamb. This also is a preview. This is why I said this is kind of an introductory message. This also is a preview of something we'll study in great detail in a few weeks, the crucifixion. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be, you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God's plan as Jesus predicted, was for Messiah to be the perfect Lamb of God on that exact specific Passover at 3 p.m. The night all Jews participate in the symbolism of the blood of the Passover Lamb, freeing them from the slavery of Egypt. But this Passover, the Lamb of God would be shed, His blood, to cover their sins, freeing all who believe in Him from the slavery, not of Egypt, but to sin. Even in his death, isn't it miraculous? Even in his death, Jesus transforms the Jewish feast calendar into a beautiful parable of the gospel. 
It's the most beautiful, see if you can catch me, it's the most beautiful, perfectly timed death in human history. But they weren't the real villain. The real villain is someone else. These guys are just merely pawns. There's someone else in the verses that we just read that really wants Jesus dead, and it's Satan, the enemy. He wants to kill Jesus, make no mistake, but he wants to kill Jesus after Passover. He knows what Daniel says. Satan wants to negate all the Old Testament prophecies, but also kill the Lord. The last thing Satan wants is for Jesus to be crucified at 3 p.m. on the 14th day of the month of Nisan in 30 AD. That's the last thing he wants. If Satan can foil that prophetic timeline of the death of Jesus, it all becomes meaningless because God is no longer in control. God is not perfect. For Satan, any other year, any other day, any other time would mean he wins. We are doomed and the world would get its wish. One chink in the perfection And the Passover lamb of God cannot be the savior he predicted he would be. These two verses, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 14, contain crucial theology. And understand the forces of darkness do not want the prophecy to be true. That this would happen during Passover week. No church, no Christianity, no Easter, no gospel. That's what would happen if it wasn't at 3 p.m. on the 14th of Nisan in 30 A.D. You can see the plan wasn't theirs at all. It was the plan of Satan. But it's ironic, right? Because Satan knows he can't win, but he tries anyway. His hatred and fear of Jesus is also irrational, just as the religious leaders. So that's our history and our theology. I have a little bit longer personal section today because there's so much in these two verses. I know it doesn't seem like it, but there really is. I've entitled this personal section, Don't Be Surprised. Here was the, here was the sermon preview of, the so, the, of social media campaign this week. 2,000 years later, the world still wants Jesus dead. How does that sound to you guys? Does it sound mean? But it's true. Look what Jesus says or John says in 1 John, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Look what Jesus said in chapter 13, verse 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Think about that for a minute. See, to people who believe in Jesus, these next three chapters are such a comfort. They're a healing balm. They're a story of redemption and transformation. They are a source of joy and peace and assurance. And when we read chapter 14 through 16, and when we hear it, we transfer ourselves to the foot of the cross. And we have this longing to see our Jesus resurrected one day face to face. That moment in the future, when our faith, which is a gift, will be confirmed by sight, and we are with our Jesus for all eternity, that is our hope, is it not? But those who don't believe the next three chapters are true, they also live by hope. Hope that our Jesus 
is a complete fraud. That is the only chance they have of escaping what he says being true. Because if Jesus is a fraud, there's no need to worry about eternal accountability. Life after death. Live now, that's all there is. And for them, if Jesus is a fraud, which they assume he is, that makes us look irrational, doesn't it? Forsaking all, sacrificing everything so that we can serve the one true living God. That is stupid. That is silly. It's a fairy tale. You are irrational. Superstitious Christians talking about this resurrection. You know what it does in the world when we talk about it openly? It produces anything in the world ranging from complete apathy, like, ah, who cares, to scoffing, well, that's stupid, to resentment. But you know what it really is? It's unspoken fear that their hope that Jesus is a fraud is wrong. Because if it's not, it demands a radical confession, a new value system, and a huge change. Look, Jesus is hated for a reason. And this is the genesis of what causes the unbelieving world to hate this part of the gospel of Jesus. Hate exacerbated by outrageous, arrogant, exclusive claims by our Lord about his authority over all spiritual matters of truth. So while the world may be okay with accepting the fashionable, progressive, social justice Jesus, they hate Jesus in Mark 14 through 16. They have no choice. The Jesus that forces all humanity to either accept or reject his many, very offensive, cut and dry absolutes. You want a few? Good. I'm glad. I have some listed for you. Here's one. I and the Father are one. What? You're God? Who do you think you are? Jesus isn't God. That's ridiculous. Not only did the religious elites reject that, those who reject Jesus reject this. That's just silly. First of all, there is no God, but you claim to be him. Maybe Jesus was just this radical nut job. John 14, 6, he makes another very offensive claim. This one is not very popular, even in some Christian circles today. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's mean. Can you see how that could make some people angry? Well, Jesus was, didn't really mean that, and if he did, he's wrong. Well, just in case you don't think those are enough reason to hate Jesus, I'll give you another one. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, that's not very nice, Jesus. You want another one? Another reason to hate Jesus? How about this one? <clears throat> John 8, 24 and 25. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, who? God. You will die in your sins. So their response, they said to him, who are you? 
What? Jesus is the one true God? Man's righteousness is pointless? Without Jesus, you face eternal judgment? And Jesus is the only way to heaven? All roads don't lead to God? Only Jesus? There aren't many paths. There's only one, him, this first century radical. Your Jesus is the only way. Oh, okay. You see, social justice Jesus is really easy to embrace. But this Jesus and his vocal followers, boy, we are arrogant, outrageous, offensive, These are the words of Jesus the world cannot and will not tolerate. And the response of the world to these things I just read is very similar to what the elite said in chapter chapter 14, verse 1 and 2. It'd be better off if he were gone. But in the end, all of this is an irrational response. I laid out extensive evidence for you in Mark 13, why Jesus is trustworthy. For those of you that didn't catch it, you need to go back and listen. The stunning detail with which he predicted the fall of the temple and the Roman invasion and the fall of Jerusalem and the warning he gave Christians to flee the safe city where a million people were slaughtered and the Christians were survived, all verified by secular historical sources. Yet many still don't want to believe who Jesus says he is. I mean, he predicted the hour of his death. The last time they wanted him to die, and that's when he died. You see, the world's hope is that Jesus is dead. You see that? How outside of his social justice message, they hope all the rest is a fraud. Because if Jesus isn't a fraud, if the next three chapters are true, the consequences that Jesus laid out for rejecting it are frightening. If Jesus is resurrected, and right now he's with the Father in heaven, this puts those who reject it in a very difficult position in the future. You can see why, right? All of this can make the gospel of Jesus alone a message which generates anger, resentment, even fear. The exclusivity of it is outrageous. (laughs) It all feeds an irrational rejection of spiritual truth just as it did for the first century religious temple elites. Unfortunately, it leads to what I call a gospel of accommodation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it is a pronoun that's antecedent, is the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, sadly, the gospel can cause fear for some of those who believe in the resurrection as well, can it? How? Well, Let me just say, at best, right, when it comes to the gospel, for those who have not been given the gift of faith, at best, the world is apathetic to our message. But more often, the world actually resents our exclusive faith, scoffing at it. Let's be honest. The outrageous words of Jesus 
as being the only way, put those who proclaim it, like us, if we proclaim it boldly in a very precarious spot. Why? Because the world loves, first of all, our hypocrisy. (laughs) Don't we give them plenty of that? The world loves our failures as the followers of Jesus, don't they? The world loves our shortcomings. And those are often the number one case used against Jesus to say he's a fraud, his flawed followers. So you can understand how sometimes as Christians, we might be afraid of the gospel as well. Not that we're afraid that it's not true, we believe it, but we might want to package it a little differently so that we don't receive the wrath of the elites. And so what we do, some believers look for ways to mask the offensive parts of the message of Jesus so we won't offend the world who still hates him. We attempt to scrub away or explain the outlandish claims by Jesus, and we just want to stress the social justice humanitarian ideas. Church, how can we say we are followers of Christ, yet feel like we need to hide or mask or adjust the most crucial offensive parts of his message? Why can't we just accept the fact that we were warned about, don't be surprised that the world hates you for my sake. Why can't we just accept the fact that the world isn't going to go out of its way to make it easy for us to follow Jesus? So my prayer over the next several weeks as we dive into this incredibly intense, emotional last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark that you will see how critical this truth is. And that is this. This is a message that the world, by its nature, rejects and has great hope that it is fraudulent. So don't be surprised when it gets attacked. Dear Jesus, even as believers, we struggle with fear. I mean, we know by the gift of faith that you have given us that we know that chapters 14 through 16 are true, but sometimes we shy away from it a little bit. You know, Jesus, you could have made it easier for us if you didn't make all those outlandish claims. (laughs) But you did for a reason, so we cannot abandon them. We must proclaim them. We must hold close to them. And as much as the world hopes they aren't true, our hope is anchored in the fact that they are. And as we go forward over the next few weeks, finishing up these last three chapters, Lord, I pray that as we study the details of the story, that we would be inspired by it and that we'd also gain courage to know that we don't have to be afraid of the world hating it because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. In Jesus' name, amen. The next three chapters are going to be intense but I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. Uh, We love you guys. If you need anything during the week, reach out to us. We've got your back. Have a great week.
God bless you. Thank you.